it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. city in the world a new generation of conservative talk fair fresh fun it's the guy benson show with guy benson it is wednesday march the 1st 2023 new month here on the guy benson show from chicago illinois i'm guy benson thank you very much for tuning in that's every weekday 3 to 6 Eastern, 2 to 5 here in the Central Time Zone. That's every weekday. And if you can't listen during our airtime, we have a podcast that is free. It is on demand. It is every day, including the weekends with Bonus Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. That's GuyBensonShow.com. FoxNewsPodcasts.com, also an option, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media, both Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow or my personal accounts on those platforms, at Guy P. Benson. Here's the lineup from the city of Broad Shoulders today. Amy Jacobson, one of our colleagues at our affiliate here in Chicago, radio affiliate on the show, that's where I started my career. They are having a field day with this mayoral election. And last night, Lori Lightfoot, the incumbent, lost. She won't even advance to the runoff. That is a big story not just in this city, but I would say nationally. There are implications here. We'll talk to Amy about it. What's the beat? What's the pulse here in Chicago on that issue? And now what does the runoff look like? I mean, one of the guys left in the race is pretty scary, honestly. In the next hour, Bill Malugin will be here talking about woke district attorney out in Los Angeles. Also, of course, the border crisis. Always enjoy our chats with Bill. And then Brian Riedel, we have to talk more about this student loan issue because we saw the arguments at the, at the Supreme Court yesterday, the big tantrums outside. More on that here in a second. But Brian Riedel, who's a budget wonk and someone who understands economic policy very well, he's now at the Manhattan Institute. He was for years on Capitol Hill. We want to talk about the actual crux, the actual substance of the whole question as well. It's not just about whether what Joe Biden did was legal or not. I think it's not legal. I think the justices are going to agree with that. But the policy, the underlying policy, even if they enacted it through legal means, which they didn't, it would be awful. Awful, unfair, inflationary, regressive policy. And I think it's important for conservatives to deal with those issues as well, to combat what the left is out there saying, because they are... Very, very loud and very, very dishonest in their consistent talking points, which make this seem like it's a big fairness issue when, in fact, it is exactly the opposite. So we'll delve into that. We begin today, though, almost where we left off yesterday. I have to admit, and I should probably start with an apology. Yes, I'm going to inflict Randy Weingarten on you again. I can't stop thinking about this harangue. This was outside the U.S. Supreme Court, this big protest from the professional left. They're very good at this. Just, you know, angry protests that they pop up on demand. 
to apply pressure and make it seem like if someone doesn't do exactly what they want, it will be just cruel and unusual and whatever institution is responsible will be diminished because of it. This is sort of the political thuggery that they engage in all the time. Now, look, it's a free country and they have free speech and they can go out there and I mean, it's interesting to see who's paying for these microphones and who gets bussed in to cheer at these stupid lines. But they can go out there. They can make their voices heard. I think undermining an entire branch of government for just, in all likelihood, following the law is not a healthy or good thing. This is, nevertheless, perfectly acceptable and constitutional, this free speech. It's constitutional, unlike what Joe Biden has done with this student loan forgiveness scheme. But Randy Weingarten, who I'll remind you, is the American Federation of Teachers president. She is kind of the face of the teachers union education bureaucracy lobby. And that's what she has, I guess, become to have known as by a lot of people around the country who may have been previously unfamiliar with Randy. Right. Those of us who are weird political obsessives, which is quite a few of us, myself included, we know Randy Weingarten and who she is and what she's about and have for years, but she took on a bigger role in our discourse during the pandemic and what she and her henchmen did to children in this country. She is, without exaggeration, I would say, one of the most anti-science, anti-child, anti-education zealots in America. And unfortunately, she also has an enormous amount of influence and money. She is the epitome, the personification of a special interest group. She and her ilk literally used their clout, their political clout, to alter the supposed quote-unquote science on school reopenings in pursuit of their own selfish agenda at the enormous expense of kids in a sane society someone like randy weingarten would not be accepted in polite society she would not be able to show her face without grave embarrassment based on what she did but because she's a member of the tribe who can throw around a lot of money from the dues collected from these union rackets she is very much a welcome part of the left-wing Democratic coalition in America. So she buys her way into these types of rallies. She was invited to that swanky state dinner a couple months ago at the White House. She is a member in good standing. I would say despite or in spite of what she did, you might argue it's because of what she did. This is who they are. I know people on the professional hardcore left view conservatives as terrible, bad people. And then they eagerly embrace Randy Weingarten. It's like, guys, here's a mirror. Here's a full-length mirror if you want to just take a gander. So Randy was at this uh, rally, if you can call it that, outside the Supreme Court yesterday. We played this a few times already on the program yesterday. A trigger warning on The Voice here, but let's just remind you of what she said in Cut 29. And so that is why President Biden said we are going to deal with that. As we deal with the end of the pandemic, we're going to deal with that. We're not going to start student debt again without actually making a down payment of it. And the Secretary of Education has the right to do it. And frankly, and this is what really pisses me off, 
During the pandemic, we understood that small businesses were hurting, and we helped them, and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. Big businesses were hurting, and we helped them, and it didn't go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. All of a sudden, when it's about our students, they challenge it, the corporations challenge it, the student loan lenders challenge it. That is not right. That is not fair. And that is what we are fighting as well when we say cancel student debt. This is about the people. And it is about the people's future. And it is about all of your futures. The last time she was that passionate about something, it was keeping little kids locked out of classrooms for as long as humanly possible. Now, look, she just in passing asserts in this speech that the administration has the authority to do what they did. First of all, no, they don't. Counterpoint. Second of all, even if you think that's debatable, that's the whole point of the Supreme Court case. Right, forgive me for not taking Randy's word for it. Noted legal scholar Randy Weingarten. Her side's going to lose this one, as they should, at the Supreme Court. But I want to underscore a point that I made yesterday briefly. That This has been gnawing at me a little bit. When she says, when she starts to really feel it in that clip, what really pisses her off, she said, was how during the pandemic, when businesses were hurting, small and large, we helped them. And she's like, and these people didn't challenge it at the court, but now we're helping our students, and they challenged it. She's pretending like there's some double standard. Like, oh, helping businesses, everyone was fine with that. Conservatives and Republicans didn't care about helping businesses, but helping students, oh, now they're going to bring it to the court. Look at these hypocrites. Of course, it's absolute rubbish. Brain-dead, stupid nonsense. The reason people didn't challenge in court the CARES Act and then the follow-up tranche of money, so it was trillions of dollars in the CARES Act in early 2020 when the pandemic hit and businesses were closed, couldn't operate a business, couldn't go to work, so we help businesses and individuals. Trillions of dollars. Then $900 billion at the end of 2020. Then the Democrats went it alone. Those previous votes were bipartisan, and they did a whole partisan bill, the so-called rescue plan, which was a giant inflation bomb, very stupid policy, but they passed it, and they enacted it, and it wasn't challenged in court and didn't go to the Supreme Court because the legislative process played out, Randy. The House voted on it, then the Senate voted on it, they passed the legislation, and then one president, Donald Trump, and then another president, Joe Biden signed it into law. That's how the process works, you moron. The problem with the quote-unquote helping of students, how she's trying to frame it, and it's just a bogus framing for all sorts of reasons that we'll get into later on today on the program, the reason this was challenged and is likely to be a successful challenge is because it didn't go through the legislative process. It didn't have support in Congress to pass. So Biden did it by himself, knowing he couldn't. Even Nancy Pelosi said he can't do it. It's not lawful. Former Attorney General Bill Barr, not lawful. The White House is not expecting to win this case, you guys. Here's a little secret. Let me tell you, they're not expecting to win the case. 
They were doing this as a pre-election pander to an element of their base and hoping that other people wouldn't realize how terrible it was on substance and on law, and they would goose turn out among a certain type of Democrat. That's what it was about. They knew they don't have the authority for this. They had to figure out some, like, 2003 law on the war on terror as their excuse to try to justify it in court. They know eventually it's going to get thrown out. Then they'll blame the court and attack the court because that's what they like to do because they feel like it benefits them uh, benefits them politically. And if it undermines democracy and the system and institutions, so be it because that's what the left does. It's fine when they do it. If conservatives do it or right-wingers do it, then it's terrible and it's, you know, democracy dying and all this stuff. Randy Weingarten, in that little rant, not so little, it's making it say, oh, why? When they did this for businesses, no one challenged it. It's because Congress passed it, Randy. The CARES Act was 419 to 6 in the House and unanimous in the Senate. Then they bounced back to the House and it passed by voice vote. That's the legislative process. And after a lot of debate, they passed the next installment. $900 $900 billion. And then the Democrats did a party-line vote, but they at least voted. They went through the proper constitutional steps. That's why the rescue plan wasn't unconstitutional, even though it was a terrible idea. And here's the thing. Randy Weingarten knows this. I called her a moron a moment ago because my temper got the best of me. I think it's worse. It'd be one thing if she were only a moron. I think she's a liar. This is a woman who earlier in her career, before she became a union boss, she was briefly an actual teacher, and she taught, as I pointed out yesterday, U.S. government, U.S. history, and political science. She understands how a bill becomes a law. She's probably seen the little video from Schoolhouse Rock. She knows the distinction. She is counting on a lot of people being ignorant and not knowing the difference, perhaps because they were taught by people like Randy Weingarten. She's counting on the ignorance of the audience or the cynicism of the audience to know full well that she's lying and cheer anyway because it's an outcome that they're worried about. And they don't care about the Constitution or the process. I mean, I wonder, given the scope of that lie, would that qualify as misinformation? Can we check in with our vaunted, hallowed experts on that? Is this misinformation from one of the most powerful special interests in the country? Methinks it might be, but certain misinformation is allowed, or at least justifiable, or ignorable, if it's for the right cause, namely whatever the cause du jour is of leftism. Here's the last point that I'm going to make. Despite my absolute contempt for this woman, and I think she has earned it in spades, I hope that she never leaves that position. Her opponents, advocates for school choice and others, are very fortunate to have this person as the face of their opposition. May she be the forward-facing exemplar of the teachers' union racket for many years to come. They deserve her. Her opponents should root for her to stay in that position and perhaps even advance up the scale.
If it's not going to be Biden in 2024, may I suggest Randy Weingarten for president? Randy, Randy, let's do it. Let's make her the face of the left. It is not an appealing one in terms of policy or outcomes, really anything, honestly. I want to get that off my chest, all of that. We'll get to the substance on the actual policy and the issue itself later on in the show. We're just getting started in the month of March from Chicago. It's the Guy Benson Show. Much more straight ahead. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson in Chicago. Something of a political earthquake, a seismic tremor last night as the incumbent mayor, Lori Lightfoot, is out of here. Up for re-election. Crowded field, and she had to get into the top two to make a runoff. I think it goes to April. And some of the polling suggested she was in third place, and lo and behold, third place. She's the incumbent, and she was at like 16, 17% of the vote total in this city. I mean, can you blame the voters here? Given her track record, I understand it's been a difficult period to be a leader in general. Some leaders get the job done and are rewarded by voters. Look at certain governors, not just in Florida, but elsewhere. Lori Lightfoot choked. She couldn't get the job done. The city is in much worse shape than it was. And voters noticed. She was asked about it. And according to reports... She explained the result as arising from the fact that she is, quote, a black woman in America. She was asked by reporters if she felt like she was treated fairly or unfairly on the campaign trail. And she said, I'm a black woman in America, of course. She had previously argued that some folks, frankly, don't support us, meaning black women in leadership roles. So I guess the voters of Chicago, deep deep blue Chicago have suddenly become sexist and racist because they failed Lori Lightfoot. Not that she failed them and failed miserably at her job. It's sexism and racism from the same people who elected her, by the way. It's funny how that works. Amy Jacobson, one of our colleagues here in Chicago, breaks it all down. Next, you don't want to miss it. Back on the Guy Benson Show from Chicago today. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free after the show. And since we're here, we might as well talk about the big election last night. Lori Lightfoot, the mayor, is going to be out. She has lost re-election, not even advancing to a runoff. She could barely get into the mid-teens in terms of support, given her performance as mayor. With us now, Amy Jacobson, an Emmy Award-winning journalist and talk host on Chicago's Morning Answer, AM560 here in the city, my home station, where I started my career, our affiliate here on this show. Amy, it is great to have you back. Thank you so much, Guy. How are you doing? I'm doing well. All right, so before we get to some of the excuse-making and then looking ahead to the runoff, just talk about the mood of the voters in this city. I mean, for an incumbent to perform as catastrophically poorly as mayor lightfoot has 
I mean, it really is a strong statement from voters. What led to this rebuke? Well, this hasn't happened in 40 years. The last incumbent to be ousted was uh, Jane Byrne when Harold Washington took her out. Um, but she, you know, I know that she, it was her messaging and her bullying of everybody, from her constituents to her staff to, um, you know, it- Italian-American leaders who are just wondering where the Columbus statue is. I mean, she just was a tyrant. She was a dictator. And she acted that way during COVID, too. And people just lost faith in her, but mostly because of the crime issue. I mean, we have 97 people right now, Guy, who are out on electronic monitoring who have committed a violent crime, whether it be rape or carjacking or armed robbery. And last year, there were 25 people who died at the hands of people who are out on electronic monitoring. So she never really confronted our prosecutor or state's attorney, Kim Fox, to get her in line or to have her change her ways. And the city just went to hell in a handbag. I mean, look at Michigan Avenue. Look at State Street. If you drive down State Street, you would be appalled and just heartbroken. All the stores pulled out. And the last one to pull out was Old Navy. And they'd been there for 15 years. And they had had enough because they had smash and grab on a daily basis. I mean, the thing is, Amy, and it is heartbreaking because – you know, this is not a city that you hate. This is a city that you love. This is where you've made your life and your career. And, you know, I, of course, went to school here at Northwestern. I love Chicago. It always feels like a second homecoming coming back here. And, look, of course there were always crime problems in Chicago, even back in you know, the, the best of the golden era glory days. Certain parts of the city were going to be dangerous and, and violent, uh, which was unfortunate. It was a fact of life. This is something just totally separate and different and worse. Areas that used to be totally safe and just sort of gleaming, the the shining, glittering examples of what Chicago can be, it's not, I would say, unrecognizable, but it is distinctly different and worse. And I don't know what her excuse is. I mean, she can do the identity politics stuff all she wants, but ultimately people can look around and look at the statistics understand what people are experiencing. They watch the late local news or the morning news uh, locally each morning. They see what's happening here. They don't like it. And look, whether she wants to admit it or not, she was in charge. This is on her. Right. And she you know, hired a superintendent who just, he was never really here. He goes to Dallas, Texas, every chance he can. This is not his home. This is, you know, he doesn't care. He has press conferences guy and i've been to them time after time where he's really just checking in just you know pressing the box just could care less and i just think that you know she just was in over her head did not know what she was doing and she was a bully about it and any person that tried to say like you know hey don't wear a coronavirus outfit on halloween that's not cool while people are locked out of their schools she did it anyway and anytime any like she's plowed through communications directors because they if they push back against her, she fires them. It's like off with their heads. So I don't know how we're gonna get the city back, but it's um I know the national media is like celebrating that this woke mayor lost, but I don't feel a sense of victory. I still feel the sense of fear. I mean, we have seventy seven neighborhoods and there has been robber robberies, carjackings, you name it, in every single neighborhood. Lincoln Park is not safe. Lakeview is not safe. Wrigleyville is not safe. Places that used to be safe, it's it's all up for grabs. In 2022, violent crime up 35% in the city of Chicago. And she's trying to focus in on like certain, you know, year over year, this was a decline here. I mean, look at the numbers from when she took over to now. I mean, it's, it is stark. 
It is scary. You've got to demoralize a police force. That's certainly true. And I saw and I read in the last segment, Amy, a quote attributed to Mayor Lightfoot, soon to be former Mayor Lightfoot, was asked about the campaign and if she felt like she was treated fairly. And she reportedly just shrugged and chalked this up to being a black woman in America. And it's like she's pretending like this is a city that didn't, what, elect her in the first place? Like, I guess the sexism and the racism was paused when they elected her. Then she did an incredibly lousy job, and they rejected her, and now it's, you know, the fault of the bigots again or whatever. Yeah, I mean, she came out as a triple threat. That's how she wanted to be introduced day one when we talked to her on our morning show. She's like, hey, um, I'm a triple threat. So what do you mean? She's like, I'm a woman, I'm gay, and I'm black. I'm like, okay, all right, here you go, triple threat. And that just, you know, identity politics, put that aside. There's Public safety, this is a civil rights issue. I mean, we have a right to public safety, and we don't. And there's a feeling of fear. See the suburbanites guy, don't come downtown to eat. Bars that used to close at 2 in the morning, close at 8 p.m. at night. Because it's so dangerous down here, nobody wants to be here. Because nobody has police officers back, so, you know, there's no foot patrol. There's no foot chases anymore. There's no... Um, uh, patrol chases, it's just, you know, police officers' hands are tied. So the first place finisher last night advancing to the runoff is a guy called Paul Vallis, and I know they're already smearing him as a Republican and all sorts of stuff that they're uh, trying to attack him as. During his campaign, up to this point, he has been really hammering on public safety, policing, more law enforcement. Here he is in Cut 26 talking about public safety, which is really issue number one. Public safety is the fundamental right of every American. It is a civil right, and it is the principal responsibility of government. And we will have a safe Chicago. We will make Chicago the safest city in America. And it will not only come from providing the police with the resources and the support they need, but from building the bond between the police department and the community. So we have true community policing in the greatest sense of the word, because the police can only be as effective as the community that they work with. All right, Amy, so that's uh, Paul Vallis, who used to run the public schools here, which I know for some conservatives is you know, kind of a red flag. Uh, he is being cast as the much more conservative person in the race. I think it's hard to argue with that. He came in first place. By a pretty good distance, but it will be a runoff. His opponent moving forward, I mean, really pulled no punches, wasted no time, basically saying people who support Paul Vallis are like January 6th in, you know, insurrectionists. That was the line coming out of the gate against Paul Vallis. It seems like this is going to be a very ugly few months on this campaign moving forward. Well, let me tell you something about Paul Vallis. Paul Vallis left CPS with a $1 billion surplus. Paul Vallis' wife is a police officer. She's now a TSA officer. His sons are, his, his one son's a firefighter, his other son's a police officer. He served, his entire family has served. Um, he, he has the city's best interest at heart. Brandon Johnson was so classless last night, just accusing Paul Vallis. He jumped in right, right away, just jumped in and started attacking him, saying that even if I had a dog, Paul Vallis would accuse me of being a puppy killer. And then the whole crowd laughed and, you know, like, oh, that's so funny. I mean, he's just, he doesn't, he's in over his head as well. He's a Cook County commissioner. He was placed there by our Cook County board president, Tony Preckwinkle. They handpicked him. He lived in Aurora. He's the son of a preacher. 
Um, and they said, you're going to move to the west side of Chicago. You're going to live on this street. You're going to run for Cook County Board Commissioner. But people need to know, as we speak right now, he is still employed by the Chicago Teachers Union as a community organizer. And they pay him $100,000 a year to be a community organizer. So his number one interest and his number one priority is taking care of the CTU. So if he wins, Chicago Teachers Union is going to be in charge of City Hall. So I mean, let that sink in for a second, because uh, that is some scary stuff. No, it's really scary because, Amy, you remember better than anyone else, you know, you had all the school closures, which were so, so terrible, especially here in Illinois. I mean, you had Governor Pritzker, who every chance he gets is taking shots at Ron DeSantis in Florida. I mean, I guess he assumes people will forget that, like, his wife and kid were in Florida at the beginning of the pandemic where they didn't have all the restrictions, but he was imposing all the stuff here in Illinois. It was awful. The kids in this state really suffered like they did in some of these other blue states. And then when it was finally time to come back to school, the teachers union went on strike here in Chicago. And so the number two vote getter who advanced to the runoff, you just mentioned him, Brandon Johnson, Brandon Johnson. He is a community organizer paid by the teachers unions, number one. And he's also, correct me if I'm wrong, Amy, there's like a pretty significant paper trail of this guy being a defund the police type person, right? Oh, yeah. And there's and those commercials are going to be coming out, and they've already actually, Lori Lightfoot's campaign started running them. of his saying, defund the police, is it's a movement. That's what we're going to do. He wants social workers instead of police officers. We asked him at one of the last press conferences, he said, is it, are you going to hire more police officers? He said, that's not the answer. The answer is, is, you know, social workers and bringing them to, you know, domestic violence calls and helping out with you know, uh, mentally challenged homeless people on the streets. And again, we all know how that's going to end because that's the call that police officers never want to take. That they Well, it's been tried other places, right? Like we've seen this blueprint in other cities and it's been a complete disaster. Like, you know, if, if you love what's happening in Seattle and Portland in Chicago and you feel like, hey, can it get worse in Chicago? It can get worse in Chicago, as a matter of fact. I know that's why I'm not celebrating today because I really wanted... Lori Lightfoot to come in second place because I think Paul Vallis would handily, you know, defeat her April 4th. But this is going to be a fight, guy. I mean, this is this is game on now because if Brandon Johnson gets in there, he also wants a head tax for companies downtown. So the more employees you have, the more taxes you have to have. He wants right. to increase the hotel motel tax in Chicago, which we cannot afford. We're barely having tourists come in as it is. And And, and again, he wants to defund police. So there's in, in he's his number one priority again is the Chicago Teachers Union. But here's the catch. So since I work at CPS and my kid goes to CPS school, some of the teachers are pretty upset because they gave their union dues four hundred and fifteen thousand to go to his campaign and then future dues to go to his campaign. But they didn't have a vote. Normally the union votes on what candidate they want to back. But they didn't do it. They just Stacey Davis Gates, the president of the CTU, just said, "No, we're giving you a million dollars." Oh, so the bosses, the the union bosses decided. Uh huh. And I yeah. know that didn't sit well with a lot of teachers. Yeah, I mean, it sounds very much like the Chicago way, though, right? Just sort of gross and corrupt, self-serving, self-dealing. I guess you have a much better handle on this city than I do. It's been years since I lived here, Amy. As you look down you know the gauntlet here for the next whatever it's going to be five weeks or so what do you see happening i mean the fact that Vallis came in first place is encouraging by a, a significant margin 
But, you know, you've got Lightfoot voters. You've got this uh, Garcia socialist who I think came in fourth place. I mean, do a lot of those votes maybe flow to the more left wing, like significantly left wing Brandon Johnson, who's already you know going out of his way to say, oh, Paul Vallis is, you know, this white Republican turncoat insurrectionist guy like that's that's the attack that they're going with already. Can he win despite that? Yeah, they're not going to back down on that. Well, here I'm hearing rumblings that Willie Wilson, who came in fourth place, um, no, fifth place, he is going to be backing Paul Vallis. So hopefully those, you know, 50,000 supporters will back Vallis. Lightfoot, they're trying. Paul Vallis just said he had a press conference today. He said that he is courting every candidate to get their support. So if he gets Lightfoot support, Chewy Garcia is definitely going to go with Brandon Johnson because Chewy Garcia was backed by the other labor unions in the city. So that's a that's that's a done deal. But we're looking at other candidates. You know, that you, this is very inside baseball. But Jamal Green, other candidates that uh, Vallis is trying to court to support him. I know there's some black aldermen I spoke with last week who said they're going to come out and support Vallis, but they wanted to wait until after this election, you know, because they, they're fearful of Brandon Johnson, too. And mm. what he's going to do. They said he's way in over his head. I mean, have you seen him speak? He is, he's tall. He's statuesque. He dresses well. He sells. He is good at his job. I don't agree with anything, any policy that he's promoting, but he is good at his job. And that is he's charismatic. He's energetic. He's, uh, you know, he's, it's going to be a very, very tight race. Well, we'll be watching from a distance. You'll be watching up close and personal. And it sounds like right-leaning folks, such as they exist in Chicago. There's some of them. seems like Paul Vallis will probably scoop them up. But then the question is, all right, where does the rest of the city go with such a heavy Democratic tilt, but a lot of people very, very unhappy, ticked off royally, obviously, at Lori Lightfoot, uh, voting her out. But then it's like, okay, do you want to potentially go even further in the wrong direction, take a step even further back with a guy like Johnson, or at least have a fighting chance with Paul Vallis, I guess we'll see what the voters decide early April. Amy Jacobson, so appreciate you taking some time. Morning talk show host on Chicago's Morning Answer, AM 560 WIND, my initial station where I started my career, a great affiliate on the Guy Benson Show. Amy, really appreciate the insights. Anytime, Guy. Thank you so much. Let's take a quick break. Let's come right back. It is the Guy Benson Show. It is Chicago. Glad to have you here. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. So the FBI director, Christopher Wray, is getting grilled on Capitol Hill. I've seen Senator Cruz take a run at him on a couple issues, Senator Hawley and others, and I'm not sure... Some of the answers are really all that impressive or acceptable from Ray, especially the divergence when it comes to the FBI's show of force and aggressiveness when it comes to targeting pro-life activists versus pro-abortion terrorists. Not sure the answers have been uh, terribly convincing from Director Ray, but he's out there making the rounds, answering the questions, and some of the questions are pointed and deserved. Last night, he joined our colleague Brett Bayer on Special Report. They got into a lot of different topics. One of them is very much in the news over the last week or so. We've been talking about it here. Cut 28, listen. 
Now there's this Department of Energy study uh, that says it's likely uh, to have come from a lab leak, although the confidence is low. It cites the FBI. What is the determination by the FBI? So, uh, as you note, Brett, uh, the FBI has for quite some time now assessed that the origins of the pandemic are most likely a potential lab incident in Wuhan. Yep. The thing that we weren't supposed to ever even utter a word about, not even breathe a whisper about. The FBI's conclusion, that's the most likely scenario. Now, the Energy Department joins. I saw Joy Reid on MSNBC. She was out there just still holding out hope that it's not true. There's other theories still. I, I just don't get the clinging to the other theory that doesn't make any sense, especially in light of the CCP's behavior. You should watch that whole interview, by the way, between Brett and Christopher Ray on the special report homepage. Some other tough questions on a number of issues, including FBI and censorship and misinformation. That's all available worth your time. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show is straight ahead. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show it's a brand new hour on the guy benson show we are broadcasting live from chicago illinois today glad to have you along GuyBensonShow.com, our online home every day podcast also free every day on demand no charge GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us at GuyBensonShow, Twitter and Instagram, or me personally, same places, at Guy P. Benson. Fox News alert. The Dow up just a hair, up five points at the close today, ending at 32,662. With us now, Bill Malugin, national correspondent for Fox News, often at the border, but he's based in L.A., which is where he joins us from today. Bill, welcome back. Hey, guys. Glad to join you as always, my friend. Uh, let's talk a bit about the border crisis while we have you here. I've mentioned some of the stats already on the air in the last couple of days with Fox News learning from Border Patrol sources that since the beginning of the fiscal year, so October, Migrant encounters have exceeded the 1 million mark. Total encounters fiscal year to date, 1,008,217, the vast majority of which were single adults. That is much higher than the roughly 840,000 at this point last fiscal year. And then you've got the known gotaways, you know, well over 350,000 already. I know that there are some indications that some of these stats might be slowing down a bit and they're they're tweaking and altering some of the policies, but at least so far in the fiscal year, it's worse than ever. Yeah, it is. And even with the slowdown, you hit the nail on the head. Fiscal year 2023 is already on pace to beat last year, which set the all-time record, which beat 2021, which set the all-time record. So uh, we are on track this fiscal year to potentially hit uh, upwards of 2.7 to 3 million migrant encounters and the expectation is once the springtime gets here when once you're looking at late march april may june uh once we hit those prime months we're going to start seeing a rise in those numbers again and keep in mind 
Title 42 is effectively gone after May 11th at the latest. And once that unravels, um, that's part of the Biden administration's new policy. Remember, what did they do? They expanded Title 42 to use it on Haitians, Cubans, Venezuelans, and Nicaraguans to expel them if they don't cross uh, you know, at, at a port of entry. Well, once Title 42 goes away, um, that rule, you know, it, it's up in the air. What's going to happen with that rule? If you're going to expel them with Title 42, once Title 42 drops, you're not going to be able to expel them anymore. And that's what they want to use. Um, they're, they're basing their whole new strategy on, okay, we want to get rid of these images of people crossing the river in mass. We want to get rid of mass crossings between ports of entry. So what are we going to do now? The strategy they're doing is they want people to cross at ports of entry, and they're doing that with this CBP-1 app where they want migrants from these specified countries, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and um, Haiti, to essentially fill out uh, an application online, get an appointment at a port of entry, meet with CBP, and then get released directly into the United States at a port of entry. So that takes away the images of the people crossing in the river, but it doesn't change the numbers of people coming into the country per se. They're just classifying it in a different way. And we're not sure if they're classifying these port of entry releases as migrant encounters because they're not exactly encountered in the river. So we're still trying to figure out exactly how they're going to count the numbers with this new policy. Yeah, I mean, they'd have to be counted somehow, right? Whether they're going to put them in a new category, I don't know. But those are still illegal immigrants entering the country, but they're getting, I guess, you know, processed more efficiently. It seems like the policies are not designed to stop the inflow and stop these crazy numbers. The new policies are to maybe make the numbers look less bad by having a more efficient processing of the illegal immigrants at the front end? Yeah, and, and what's really important to point out with this is they say they're going to be letting in 30,000 people a month via this CBP-1 app with these, with these countries. Well, once they're in the United States, they are not here legally under U.S. law. They're here because the Biden administration says they can be here, and there is a big difference with that. The Biden administration is releasing them into the U.S. via a two-year parole policy, which means they'll get, they're authorized to try to get a work permit in the United States for two years. That does not mean they are here legally. So what happens, let's say a Republican president takes over in 2024, right? Well, he can unwind that policy with the stroke of a pen. And that parole status can be stripped of everybody who's who, who, who's been let in already. They are not in the U.S. legally. Only although, Congress. Go ahead. No, I no, I agree with that. Although cynically, and I think this is the reason that they're doing this, the idea that a Republican president would come in, let's say, and try to reverse it, at least you know theoretically, constitutionally, he could do that. But we saw Donald Trump do that with DACA, and the Supreme Court wouldn't let him. Uh, even though it had been implemented illegally, uh, in my view, the Supreme Court said that's okay. And then you would think, okay, the next president could come in and reverse it just as easily, not so fast. And then, of course, all the sob stories come in. Oh, well, this person's here, and now he's got a kid. And are you really going to revoke the status early? And are you going to deport and round up all these people? It's so inhumane, and it becomes unworkable. I think that's the whole strategy, to make it really, really hard to ever reverse this and you know they they're not interested in upfront uh, you know border security and enforcement and then they're extremely not interested in after the fact enforcement or removal i think again maybe it's too cynical but i think that's the point of all of this 
Well, the other thing is this parole policy is being challenged in court. Texas has already sued over it, and all the border contacts I'm talking with expect this policy to lose in court, and there's a reason for that. Again, they're releasing these people into the country via humanitarian parole. And under U.S. federal law, that parole is supposed to be under a very, very, very tight case-by-case basis for only two circumstances, significant public benefit or urgent humanitarian reasons. And just to put it in perspective for you, last summer the administration was doing you know, 50 to 60,000 paroles per month. That is certainly not a case-by-case basis. Former U.S. Border Patrol Chief Rodney Scott told me when he was in uh, his position under Trump, he did maybe 10 in one year. So just put that in perspective, 10 in a year versus 50 or 60,000 in a single month. And the way it's been described to me is with those classifications, it has to be either significant public benefit. Perhaps you need somebody to come in from Mexico to testify in a trial against somebody, somebody in a cartel, something like that, or urgent humanitarian reasons. Somebody's mother is sick and on their deathbed with cancer, and somebody from outside the country wants to come in and say, see them one last time. Those are the kind of standards that it used to be under. It used to have to go up the chain and get signed off by higher ups in the command. Now it's just issued carte blanche in mass, tens of thousands a month, and that yeah, is why which, which is, say it is by yeah. definition, Bill. To your point, that is not on sort of a discrete case by case basis. That is entire classes of people where they're announcing it'll be tens of thousands a month. That that's not case by case, right? Definitionally, it's not. Exactly. And that is why um, there's a pretty significant anticipation that it is likely going to lose in federal court and why states are already suing for it. So we'll have to see what happens with that. If that thing unravels, we're likely going to go right back to what we were seeing. Because keep in mind, let's say that loses in court, Title 42 goes away in the springtime hits. We're looking at a possible trifecta of, you know, worst case scenarios for the the numbers starting to shoot up again. And again, the cynical side of me coming back out, let's say it does lose in court. You'll see the Democrats attacking the courts, which is what they do. And we're seeing it now, I think, in advance of the the student loan decision, which is, uh, I think, black and white, cut and dried. But they are outcomes oriented, not constitutionally oriented, at least some of the activists. So let's say it does get thrown out. Okay, then you still have all these people who are here illegally, but like quasi-legally, The federal government, especially under this administration, they're not going to go and try to track down these people and deport them. They're going out of their way to deport as few people as possible and to minimize the categories of people who can be deported from this country, including people who are convicted of additional crimes, right? That's the thing, Bill. If they are, as they have, put into memos as the official policy of this administration that if you come into the country illegally, violating our sovereignty, breaking the law once— Then you get here and you commit any number. They've got a whole category, a whole list of different crimes that you can commit and be convicted of and still not qualify for deportation. If you were one of these people, the tens of thousands every month who got in under some like quasi legal ish process that they came up with, there's no chance they're going to go after those people for deportation and they're going to try to make it extremely politically difficult and painful for anyone who attempts it. I mean, that's at least how I read it based on very recent experience. You're 100% correct. These people are here to stay. They are not going to be removed. Um, Basically, under the Biden administration, ISIS priorities for removal are terrorists, national security threats, 
and extreme risk to the public. And you, and you just mentioned it. There are a list of crimes that uh, these migrants can convict or commit and still be allowed to stay here in the U.S. And the stat that really jumps out is, look, last year, 2022, highest illegal crossings ever recorded, about 2.4 million, and ICE only removed about 70,000 people. I mean, that is that is not even a drop in the bucket. No. And most of those most of those removals were people who never left federal custody. They were people who had some sort of hit on their criminal record. They stayed in ICE detention after they were transferred from Border Patrol, and then they were removed. It's not like ICE is going out into cities and looking for people who didn't show up for their court dates or or committed crimes. And they're, they're going out into the cities and doing those raids, those sort of things, that is barely, barely happening at all anymore. And you hit the nail on the head. Once these people are in here under this policy, um, it is very unlikely that, you know, uh, any, any of them or most of them are going to be removed at some point in the future. Yeah, no, I mean, they're just, they're just, that's the reality, right? And, and just the numbers that you just received for us, you got millions of people in a year coming here illegally, many, many, many of them being released into the interior of the country by the administration. And during that same year, they remove, they deport 70,000 people. I mean, that's like the equivalent of maybe like a month of gotaways, of gotaways alone. That's the, all the removals in one year because they're telling folks, if you come here and you turn yourself in or you're part of this you know, mass amnesty or parole, we'll set you loose. We'll fly you or bus you to the city of your choice, and at some point you'll maybe get in front of a judge, maybe not, and in the meantime – be sure to get jobs and have kids and all that stuff. It'll be basically impossible to remove you from the country. And by the way, uh, you, you've got a freebie. If you want to commit assault, if you want to get convicted of DUI, you can do that, too. We won't remove you. I mean, it it just it speaks for itself, Bill. And uh, before we let you go, the House Republicans are at least trying to draw more attention to this. They had a hearing, a field hearing in Yuma, Arizona. None of the Democrats on the committee showed up for that hearing. Uh, what are you hearing about that? We've got about 30 seconds. Well, I, I talked to Speaker McCarthy about that, and he says it's the Democrats flat out failing to do their jobs of serving the American public. Uh, I mean, there was there was good testimony there, including from the CEO of the local hospital who said, look, we're $26 million in the hole because we've had to spend uncompensated care on all these illegal immigrants coming into our facility, mostly pregnant women and dehydrated migrants who need months of dialysis, and nobody's paying us back for it. The feds aren't reimbursing us, and the migrants can't pay. And uh, yep. we're $26 million in the hole. Who's going to help us? And I yeah, and the hospital has been full, and they've been sending actual tax-paying residents of the community to other hospitals because, it's I mean, it's just it's out of control. It's something that we cover, and you cover it more than anyone else. Bill Malugin, our colleague here at Fox News. Bill, thanks very much, as always. Thanks, Guy. Talk. Guy Benson Show, back after this. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. So I saw this video floating around. It's a flashback to 2018. You had Kamala Harris, then a U.S. senator from California, on the campaign trail, stumping for a woman named Marilyn Mosby for Baltimore City State's attorney. And Kamala Harris had full confidence in Marilyn Mosby. Boy, she was all in. On the Mosby campaign, because say what you will about Kamala Harris, the woman certainly has instincts. <laughs> and so here she is, part of her speech that she gave on Mosby's behalf. This was uh, four or five years ago. 
It's going to be rough. It's going to be tough. She cannot fail. And I know she will not fail. She cannot fail. And I know she will not fail. The future vice president said. Narrator. She failed. Here's the headline from FoxNews.com. Baltimore's former top prosecutor, Marilyn Mosby, has trial delayed after entire defense team quits. By the way, this is her defense team in her trial. Here's the story. Former Baltimore City State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby's trial for perjury and making false mortgage applications was delayed again to November after her entire defense team quit last month according to an order issued Monday. Mosby pleaded not guilty last year to the charges, which alleged she falsely claimed financial hardship during the COVID-19 pandemic to withdraw $90,000 from her retirement accounts and then use those funds to place down payments on two vacation properties in Florida. By the way, the fact that it's Florida is just icing on the cake here. Here's a Democrat official in one of these lockdown cities with all the strictures and restrictions and mandates that you could possibly imagine, schools closed, students just terribly failing, crime run amok, and the prosecutor in Baltimore is allegedly committing fraud so she can buy some vacation homes down in Florida. Just terrific stuff. Despite the claim of financial hardship, prosecutors say, Mosby received her full salary of $247,955 in 2020, the same year that she withdrew from her retirement accounts. So she was claiming hardship and making a quarter million dollars a year in that role. Man, oh man. Prosecutors also allege that Mosby lied on mortgage applications by failing to disclose unpaid federal taxes. It gets better, doesn't it? She also owed taxes to the federal government. How much do you want to bet this was a tax and spend, rich need to pay their fair share type of person? I mean, there's a 100 out of 100 chance of that. She's a Baltimore Democrat. They have their talking points down. They all do. The rich need to pay their fair share. She was making 250K a year, claimed financial hardship so she could then fraudulently withdraw some money to buy some vacation homes down in Florida. While, all along, she owed taxes to Uncle Sam. And if there's one thing that Kamala Harris really sensed in her bones about this woman, it was that she couldn't fail and would not fail. Let's listen again. It's going to be rough. It's going to be tough. She cannot fail. And I know she will not fail. Well, I guess the one thing that she got right there was it was rough and it was tough. Apparently rough and tough just to keep a defense team intact because all of her lawyers have walked away. I wonder what that drama is. I hear Kamala Harris is a lawyer. Failed the bar once or twice, but eventually got there. A little engine that could. Maybe the vice president could come in pro bono, do some work for this woman that she loves so much, Marilyn Mosby in Baltimore. I wonder if she's asking to be held on house arrest. Would that be in Florida? The Guy Benson Show. Back after this. Stay with us.
You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. From the Windy City of Chicago, halfway through the program, halfway through the week. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free on demand when the show is over. With us now, Brian Riedel, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, longtime budget wonk on Capitol Hill. Brian, always good to have you here. Glad to be here. Thanks. Well, I feel like we've got to do this again. We've talked about it in the past, but it's back as the capital I issue on the left this week because of the Supreme Court. It's the student loan forgiveness scheme, which in my mind is clearly illegal. Seems like the Supreme Court is poised to agree with me on that. But I think conservatives have to go beyond that argument because, of course, it's extremely important if the president has done something that vastly exceeds his authority and therefore is unconstitutional and therefore is illegitimate, and the court will render its verdict one way or another on that. But the underlying issue here, the policy itself of so-called forgiveness of these loans, is also absolutely atrocious policy on multiple levels. And I think on substance, we need to engage on those points, point by point, because the left has slogans, and they have a lot of passion and anger, and they get up there with their megaphones and their chants and their very dishonest slogans. And I think we should beat them back. So let's just start with the fairness issue. We're seeing the left trying to frame this as they so often do economic issues in terms of fairness and class warfare. But the facts don't actually align with their usual talking points here. This is regressive. This is like a reverse Robin Hood situation, to borrow one of their terms. I mean, if you take just take a look at forgiveness... It's a $40,000 bailout at the most for families earning up to $250,000 a year. So it's a, it's a bailout for doctors, lawyers, MBA business executives. You know, most millennials don't carry student debt, and if they do, it's manageable. It's just the 6% who borrow more than 100000 who stand to benefit the most, but who are mostly, again, the people borrowing the most money. We're talking doctors. We're talking MBAs. We're talking attorneys. We're talking people who are going to make millions uh, over their lifetime. And the people who will pay this cost are the regular taxpayers who are going to pay the taxes to have to make up the fiscal gap and shore up the deficit that this is causes. But also the inflationary cost. This is going yes. to hike inflation by about a third of a percentage point, which is also going to cost about $200 per household per year in higher inflation costs. So for all the progressive talk about redistribution, this is redistribution upward. It's also, as you point out, just simply unfair that – People who take out these loans shouldn't have to pay them back when so many other people either pay back their loans or work their way through college. Yep. People take out car loans. People take out home loans, mortgages. They take out loans for all sorts of reasons. And they sign paperwork legally obligating them to pay it back, pay the money back. That's how it works. Now, you can say the system's broken and it's unfair and things keep getting more expensive and all of that. But people went into these deals, eyes wide open, and made a commitment. Now, look, if you want to make the argument that this small subset, I mean, it's so important to remember that the majority of American adults did not go to college. 
let alone grad school. So, of course, they don't have this type of debt. They never had an opportunity to incur this kind of debt. They didn't go to college. That's the majority of American adults. Then you've got countless others who went to school, maybe passed over the opportunity to go to a more elite school, maybe a dream school, because they knew they couldn't afford it, didn't want to take out the loans and, and have that vulnerability financially moving forward, that kind of exposure. So they deferred some of their own preferences because they were being responsible and prudent in taking charge over their own lives. You had other people who maybe took the plunge anyway and have been working tirelessly to pay back those loans and have paid back those loans. I mean, there's a whole swath of categories of people who would get nothing under this except getting screwed to pay for other people. Only about 14% of the American people have this kind of debt at all. And it just doesn't make sense to me why collectively we should have to pay for this particular type of debt so-called forgiveness when it wouldn't apply to other forms of debt. And there really hasn't been an explanation for that, Brian. I feel like Democrats and people on the left who chant their little talking points about this stuff, they really have trouble when they are rarely challenged on the points that you and I are making here. They don't really have good answers, which strikes me as a very good reason to keep making the point over and over again. Debt uh, uh, relief on this level is unpopular, and, and you know that because Democrats running for the Senate in purple states like Michael Bennett and in Ohio, um, uh, the Democratic candidate who ran against J.D. Vance, all ran against the bailout. Uh, so de- Democrats, even in swing states, know this is unpopular. It's unjust. You know, I'm old enough to remember when Bill Clinton used to say that government should help those who play by the rules. Well, if you played by the rules and were responsible about about either working your way through college or paying back your student loan, you have just been made a chump or a sucker. And again, you know, in terms of who's affected, two thirds of millennials carry no student debt. And of those who do, the median cost is just 4% of their income or $182 a month. This is not a crisis for the vast majority of millennials. In fact, it's the small sliver who borrowed $100,000 or $200,000, usually for medical school, law school, business school. Right. Those are the ones who are going to make the money you know, over the long term. Right. The lifetime earning potential is vast. The ceiling is high. That's why they took the loans out, because they said it'll be worth it to have that MD next to my name or that JD next to my name. Then I'll go out and make a bunch of money, and over time I'll pay it back. And now this is just sort of a shortcut that they want to do. And it's just – it's look, if Congress had debated this and decided to move forward anyway – I would have said it's a terrible, terrible idea. And by the way, they wouldn't have moved forward for the point that you just made for that reason. Even though it polls relatively well on the surface, when you dig one inch, one centimeter beneath the surface, then the polling flips. When you give a single trade-off or downside to the voters, the popularity of this program collapses. And part of the reason for that is Look, people like the idea, oh, forgiveness, that sounds nice. And then you say, oh, but the implications are this. And it's like, well, hang on just a second. I, I'm no longer so interested in that. I think that is one of the political dynamics at play here. 
And as you pointed out, there were Democrats running for office statewide in some big races, Nevada, Ohio, Colorado, and elsewhere, who did not want to touch this program because they understood the political vulnerabilities attached to it, especially since it was being done unilaterally. If they had had a vote on this in Congress, they don't have the votes. They don't even have the Democratic votes all in line, let alone the Republicans who would have been lockstep against it. So the popularity, I think, is illusory for a number of different reasons. Let me read to you. This is from an analysis done at Penn, Wharton, one of the most prominent business schools in the country. They looked at this program and, of course, the initial cost estimates. uh, There are a number of experts who say, actually, it'll be much more expensive. This is what Penn Wharton found. Quote, we estimate that forgiving federal college student loan debt, this program, this unilateral power grab, will cost between $300 billion and $980 billion over the 10-year budget window. So the upper reach of this pushing a trillion over 10 years, depending on program details. About 70%, here we go, about 70% of debt relief accrues to borrowers in the top 60% of the income distribution. So all across the bell curve of income in America, Everyone's paying for this bailout scheme. For a very small number of Americans, the vast majority of the benefit would go to that small number of people who are in the upper echelon of income on on our scale in this country. That just underscores, again, the point that you're making, Brian. The reason I'm doing this is not just a conservative host making these points or a conservative budget analyst making this point from the Manhattan Institute. I'm citing some nonpartisan sources as well. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget agrees the final price tag will be in the hundreds of billions of dollars, delivering, quote, the majority of the benefits to those in the top half of the income spectrum. Other watchdogs warn that this program, as it's laid out, is ripe for fraud. Of course it is. Imagine that. And then I want to come back to your point on inflation. The Tax Foundation nonpartisan and even some partisan Democratic economists, like I saw Jason Furman warning about this, saying this is explicitly, aggressively inflationary. And, Brian, I want you to comment on this. It's not just that this would fuel inflation because it would be a whole bunch of new spending just through the magic unconstitutional wand of Joe Biden, if it were upheld, which I don't think it will be. That's inflationary. That's the last thing that we need, given the massive inflation pressures still being faced by Americans. Numbers that came out last week were really worrisome again on this front. But also within the realm of higher education, Brian, you know as well as I do, those costs have been spiraling way past inflation now for years. The numbers are staggering. They're crazy. Like, I look back to what I paid in college, which was really high, and then what kids are paying these days at some of these schools, it just goes up and up and up. And if you see this happen... There will be an anti-incentive to get those costs under control. They will spiral faster, harder, sooner because of what the federal government is doing here with the bailout. I mean, the whole higher education cost problem would become much, much worse, right? I mean, you know, just just uh, 
a little having a little fun with this. Politico wrote an article two days ago that said President Biden's top two priorities are reigning in inflation and reigning in the deficits. The student loan bailout makes a mockery out of both. It's inflationary and it hikes the deficits. And this is why the Penn Wharton numbers you cited actually understate the negative effects. First off, when they say it's only going to benefit the, the top 60 percent, they're measuring by current incomes, not lifetime incomes. A lot of these right. people who right. just got out of college, they just finished law school, business school, medical school, they may be in the, you know, the 70th income percentile now. They're going to be in the 95th percentile in 10, 20 years. So it's so even it'll get more even more lopsided. And then, as you say, the cost is going to rise because universities are going to see student loan bailouts and they're going to raise tuition because the students know if they bailed out these groups, they're going to bail out mine next year and mine the year after. And that's the thing. Even with a student loan bailout, student loan debt returns right back to the old level within seven years, which means we're going to be right back in the same boat in seven years with the same mm-hmm. $1.6 trillion in outstanding debt. And you know what happens then? Another round of bailouts. This is going to happen over and over and over. And each time they do it, universities are going to raise tuition even more because they know students aren't going to care about the price anymore because they're going to be expecting a bailout. So Penn Wharton understates both the, the, the upward tilt and the cost of this. Yep. If students and schools believe that there's a federal backstop to this, they have no incentive to bend the cost curve in the direction that it needs to go. The problem will not be solved. The problem will be exacerbated, and on and on it will go, and the unfairness will deepen. So I would just say, to me, it's obviously unconstitutional what Biden has done. I think the court will ultimately uh, agree with that assessment. There are a bunch of people who might not care about whether it's constitutional. They don't care how it came to be. They personally would benefit from it, so they're in favor of it. But where I think you need to attack this whole proposition beyond the constitutionality, which is of paramount importance in my mind, is it is also deeply, grotesquely unfair. It is inflationary and is regressive. I mean, it is just an absolutely toxic combination of factors. You would never know that from the impassioned pleas and sloganeering that we're hearing on it, but it happens to be true, which is why we're bringing it to you. On The Guy Benson Show with Brian Riedel, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Brian, thank you. Always a pleasure. Stepping aside, coming right back after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We return to the Guy Benson Show. Glad you are here with us. So that uh, Greta Thunberg character has been arrested again. She loves this. I think that's her occupation these days. Right, Her job is to go around screaming about the environment and getting arrested with a giant grin on her face because it just promotes her cause, her celebrity, the attention that she brings upon herself. By the way, I think she's like 20 now. Are we allowed to criticize her? Because for the longest time, she would waltz around the world, scolding everyone, indignant as can be. How dare you? How dare you? All that stuff. And adults, like, prostrated themselves before this girl, this child. Oh, you're so genius. You're so amazing. Oh, we're so sorry. We're so sorry what we're doing. And people who disagreed with some of her very bad ideas, like me, if you would really go after 
her on the ideas, the response would be, oh, you're attacking a child. All right, same thing on gun control stuff sometimes. What, these mean conservatives attacking children? Okay, so, like, when do you graduate into criticizable age range? Does 20 count? I think 20 counts. So the latest arrest of Greta was in Norway. So this one was closer to home than some of her other sermons that she's delivered. She was one of dozens of activists who blocked the entrance to Norway's energy ministry in Oslo to protest, wait for this, a wind farm they say hinders the rights of indigenous people to raise reindeer in the Arctic. Yes, Greta is protesting a wind farm because there's some other left-wing green piety that apparently the wind farm at least allegedly violates. And it's hard to sort of keep track of what types of energy we're allowed to have under Queen Greta's rule. Obviously, the reliable good forms of energy, we cannot have that. No, absolutely not. So what about alternative like wind? Absolutely. Well, not if it interferes with the raising of reindeer in Norway, in which case that's another reason to get arrested. This is not a serious person with serious ideas. Obviously, I'm happy that she cares about things and she's got a hobby and clearly has a lot of attention. And now she's like out there issuing sick burns on social media to her critics or whatever. That's fine. It's, I guess, what 20 year olds do. But she should not be taken seriously in any way by people making policy because following her ideas is a path to ruin and misery for a lot of people. And by the way, she let the cat out of the bag. What was it, a few months ago, admitting that this is about dismantling capitalism? It's not about the planet. This is just like left-wing socialist commie stuff from Greta. So congrats on the new arrest. You're doing great, Greta. Can the rest of us please just totally ignore her advice? I think we're allowed to say those things, I think. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up next. Stay with us. How dare you? clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. The Happy Hour is here on this Wednesday from Chicago. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free, always on demand after the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You've got options there. Follow us on social, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. Or yours truly, personally, same two places, at Guy P. Benson. This hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink which is terrific. Haven't had one in a couple weeks, actually, so I need to rectify that. They're all over the place in Illinois now. I'm heading to Florida tomorrow. They are super popular down in Florida, so i got to get my hands on a long drink. You should, too, 21-plus only, I should mention. Always drink responsibly, just so refreshing. 
thelongdrink.com. That's their website, thelongdrink.com. You can find out where they're sold near you. You can also order online. So I want to talk about a few things here as we open our final hour of today's program. I do not have an account on Truth Social, Donald Trump's social media platform, but I will see screenshots of what he's yelling about from time to time. And usually I ignore it. Occasionally I feel like we should respond. And almost daily we're getting unhinged attacks on Ron DeSantis because obviously Donald Trump believes that DeSantis is a threat. That's the reason why Trump and his allies are currently in a weird alliance with the Democratic Party, with the professional left, with the mainstream media, with groups like the Lincoln Project. They all agree that Ron DeSantis needs to be stopped and that Donald Trump needs to be the Republican nominee for president next year. They agree on that. They agree on that for different reasons. Trump and his supporters agree on it because they want Trump. And the rest of them believe that because they want Trump in a very different way. They want to run against Trump. And so we've documented some of this stuff where the DNC rapid response has been amplifying anti-DeSantis themes that Trump's been beating the drum on, including this just preposterous suggestion that DeSantis was a shutdown governor during the pandemic. Just crazy. That's what the DNC is up to. I saw one of these outside Democratic groups like Super PAC, Oppo Research guys, putting out photos of DeSantis wearing cowboy boots, wondering if it's because he's short and he's wearing high heels, even though it's just cowboy boots, just normal cowboy boots. Jennifer Rubin, the unhinged leftist columnist at the Washington Post, glommed onto that one. The Lincoln Project is tweeting attacks against DeSantis all the time rooting openly for Trump against DeSantis. Like, oh, yeah, Trump's going to chew him up and spit him out. That's what they want. That's what their grift requires, as a matter of fact. So, I mean, it is true. Trump has gained in the last couple of weeks. I think this thing is a marathon, not a sprint. DeSantis, if he gets in, won't be in for a number of months from now. But it's still interesting that Trump, I think, is benefiting from some of these recent failures of Biden. Trump was also very smart, masterful politically, getting to East Palestine and Ohio, beating the Democrats there, beating the incumbent administration there, which is, I mean, such a failure by Biden and Buttigieg. And Trump took advantage of it, you know, credit to him. But in terms of a real open fight for the nomination, we're not there yet and we won't be there for a while. Nevertheless, it's obvious who a lot of people want to kill before he even gets in. And so on that front, just yesterday, Trump was truthing, quote unquote, a new attack on DeSantis, which is that DeSantis is too fiscally conservative. All right, so Trump doesn't actually believe really in much of anything when it comes to policy, certainly on fiscal stuff, right? He's the type of guy who in the 2016 primaries was saying, oh, yeah, we're not going to touch this. We're not going to touch that. Nothing on Medicare, nothing on Social Security. Don't worry. But he also said, we'll eliminate the national debt. We'll do it in my two terms as president. National debt will be gone, which is a ludicrous fantasy. But he said it, and a lot of people believed. well, he's a businessman. He knows what he's talking about. He knows numbers. I mean, we can see 
which direction the national debt went. It was not down at all under him. Some of that wasn't his fault because of COVID. Some of it was his fault. But now what Trump is doing is attacking DeSantis for having voted in the past for budget proposals that would have actually helped to fix Social Security and Medicare from a conservative perspective, which is something that was a consensus, at least for a while, among Republicans and conservatives. Because the math is the math. It still should be a consensus. I know a lot of the Republicans have abandoned it because what they've decided is if we go down the path towards reform and proposing anything, no matter how reasonable and responsible it is, the left and the media will attack us as hating seniors, we'll get hit for it politically, it won't actually get achieved, so let's just wait until the whole thing is basically going off a cliff, and then the Democrats will have no choice but to join us and do something. That's the new mentality among a lot of Republicans, which I think is a shame. I get it politically, but like there's a responsibility to try to govern in a way that is realistic and deals with reality as it exists. The Democrats aren't going to do that on this stuff. Apparently the Republicans aren't either in many cases. So DeSantis, back when he was in Congress, he was a congressman from Florida for a couple of terms, he signed on to Paul Ryan's ideas, which were good. And you might remember, conservative media, talk radio, all of us were aligned on this, saying we've got to get our arms around the problem, which, by the way, has only gotten worse. And they are lying aggressively about what the Republicans are proposing. Nancy Pelosi over and over again called it a tornado ripping through nursing homes. They were talking about killing seniors. Now, of course, the proposals, not to get too deep in the weeds, exempted anyone who was already a senior or within 10 years of becoming a senior. Everyone in those demographics were exempted from any changes. None. No changes at all. This was for future seniors to try to make these programs survive, make them solvent. And the Democrats made it seem like Republicans were going around shooting senior citizens in the face. That was their rhetoric. It was extremely dishonest. We fought it hard. The most perhaps infamous example of this was the TV commercial from an outside left-wing group that portrayed Paul Ryan pushing an old woman in a wheelchair off of a cliff to her death. Remember this? It was just grotesque, but that's what they went with. And now Donald Trump, in his zeal to attack Ron DeSantis for any reason, because, I mean, he just sees red when he sees Ron DeSantis. He sees a threat. Here's what he put out on Truth Social. DeSantis, quote, wanted to cut Social Security and raise the minimum age to at least 70, at least four times. Likewise, with Medicare, he wanted big cuts. He is a wheelchair over the cliff kind of guy, just like his hero failed politician, Paul Ryan. Donald Trump here is basically verbatim recycling the disgusting left wing smears of a decade ago. I don't care if you like Paul Ryan or not now. Right. Oh, he's a rhino now. Okay, whatever. Paul Ryan was fighting the good fight on conservative principles and conservative governance back then. We were all on board because it was the right thing to do. The left lied and lied and lied and lied about it for their own selfish, short term, myopic political needs. And now here's Trump 
just grabbing it like a club and trying to beat DeSantis over the head for having done the right thing that we all agreed was the right thing. He is adopting the left-wing lie on this, happily, giddily, because he feels like this is just maybe one more opportunity to slice and dice Ron DeSantis. I mean, maybe this will work with some voters on the right. I don't know. If you're in a cult of personality where you will defend anything that someone says, no matter who that person is, then obviously you're going to salute and say this is great and this is the new truth. And the old truth doesn't matter. Here's our new truth because so-and-so said it. But I think for anyone who's just like a normal conservative who actually believes things and it's not about the person, it's about the outcomes and the policies, to me it's just very unfair and off-putting to take a discredited, dishonest, left-wing hatchet job and use it to try to bleed support from your opponent from the left. Like, if conservatives and Republicans are going to disagree with each other, then by all means, have good-faith disagreements and say, here's why Donald Trump would be a better nominee for president than Ron DeSantis, or here's why Ron DeSantis has made mistakes as the governor of Florida or as a member of Congress, and we're not going to attack him from the left. We're not going to become the Democrats. We're going to say here's why he shouldn't be the Republican standard bearer. Go for it. That is all completely fair game. It bothers me when you see Republicans and Democrats uniting together in bad faith to take someone out using left-wing arguments on the right. To me, that makes me more interested in the target of those attacks, more interested in defending that person, because this is bad faith all the way down. It's what it is. And that might not mean much coming from me, because I've been very open about the fact that I'm not a Trump guy. But I just wonder, for people who are out there listening who might be on the fence They like Trump. They voted for him twice. Maybe you're one of those people. You're happy he was president. You think he got screwed over to some extent last time around, but you're interested in maybe shopping around. You like DeSantis, what he's done in Florida. Is this the type of thing, using the Nancy Pelosi, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, MSNBC attack line, the anti-math, anti-conservative argument, is this something that you feel like, oh, yeah, that's a strike against Ron DeSantis. Trump has a good point here. Again, perhaps for some people the answer is yes. I would guess for a number of other people the answer is no. Now, one thing where we're seeing DeSantis criticized in Florida is his moves regarding Disney. He's defending himself. He's got a new op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying, here's why we took away the special privileges from Disney. He makes his case. I'm not sure I completely agree with it. But we'll talk about it and bring you some of what he said right after this break on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour. Just teased before the break this op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by Governor Ron DeSantis, Why I Stood Up to Disney. Now, the counterpoint, I'll just say this, the criticism, including from some conservatives, Mike Pence and others, they've been saying, look, this is not a good precedent, right? This is government overreach coming in 
and exacting retribution on a private company over a political dispute, a political disagreement. And this is not an appropriate use of government power. And by the way, it will be abused, this precedent, by the other side. And I will tell you, I am sympathetic to a number of those arguments. All right, I have wrestled with this one back and forth. Well, here's DeSantis explaining exactly why he did what he did in the Wall Street Journal. And he explains some of the background. He says, Disney's special arrangement, which dates to 1967, was an indefensible example of corporate welfare. It provided the company with a favorable tax treatment, including the ability to assess its own property valuations and enjoy the benefits of regional infrastructure improvements without paying taxes toward the projects. It exempted Disney from Florida's building and fire prevention codes. It even allowed Disney to build a nuclear power plant and to use eminent domain to seize private property outside the district's boundaries. While special districts are common in Florida, Disney's deal was conspicuous in the massive benefits it conferred. Disney's self-governing status endured because the company's unrivaled political power in Florida made its arrangement virtually untouchable. For more than 50 years, the state of Florida put Disney on a pedestal. All that changed last year when left-wing activists working at the company's headquarters in California pressured Disney to oppose Florida's Parental Rights and Education Act. The legislation bans classroom instruction on sexuality and gender ideology in kindergarten through third grade and requires that sex instruction in other grades be age-appropriate. Disney executives were seen on videos boasting about the company's plans to inject sexuality into its programming for children. So... DeSantis is drawing a direct line. Like, okay, you guys had all these special privileges for so long. Then your California leadership decided that you were going to oppose this parental rights bill and fight us on this child sexual issue, and then things changed. DeSantis goes into some of the background. I don't have time to read the entire op-ed. You can go to the Wall Street Journal and see it for yourself. But he writes, the regrettable upshot of the woke ascendancy is that publicly traded corporations have become combatants in battles over American politics and culture, almost invariably siding with leftist causes. It's unthinkable that large companies would side with conservative Americans on the Second Amendment or the right to life, election integrity, or religious liberty. In this environment, and this comes to the crux of his argument, in this environment, old guard corporate republicanism isn't up to the task at hand. For decades, GOP officials have campaigned on free market principles but governed as corporatists, supporting subsidies, tax breaks, and legislative carve-outs to confer special benefits on entrenched corporate interests. But policies that benefit corporate America don't necessarily serve the interests of America's people and economy. When corporations try to use their economic power to advance a woke agenda, they become political and not merely economic actors in such an environment reflexively deferring to big business effectively surrenders the political battlefield to the militant left having private companies wield de facto public power isn't in the best interests of most americans woke ideology is a form of cultural marxism leaders must stand up and fight back when big corporations make the mistake as disney did of using their economic might to advance a political agenda We are making Florida the state where the economy flourishes because we are the state where woke goes to die. 
And that's how the piece concludes from Governor DeSantis. Now, do I still have questions about whether this is a smart precedent that could be exploited and abused on the other side? Yes, although I think the other side is ruthless and they're going to do what they're going to do anyway. I do wonder as a matter of principle, is this the type of really unvarnished, undisguised punishment that the government should be using to strike back at a company for crossing it, basically, on politics. I'm not perfectly comfortable with this, I'll be honest. I also get where DeSantis is coming from. Like, the landscape, the battlefield is different now. And if corporations are going to go in with the hard left as they have far too often recently, and we rail against it here, for Republicans just to twiddle their thumbs, I think also isn't an option. And if you're going to make a defense of this type of thing, DeSantis did a pretty good job in this op-ed. I wonder what you think. Got a break. We'll take it. We'll come right back. It's the happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour in Chicago. And earlier today, in our first hour, we welcomed one of my colleagues from our affiliate here in Chicago, the Guy Benson Show's affiliate AM560, where I started my career. Amy Jacobson, one of the co-hosts on The Morning Show. Boy, so much to talk about involving the mayoral race. Lori Lightfoot is done. Here's part of what Amy had to say about the mood here in Chi-Town. Just talk about the mood of the voters in this city. I mean, for an incumbent to perform as catastrophically poorly as Mayor Lightfoot has... I mean, it really is a strong statement from voters. What led to this rebuke? Well, this hasn't happened in 40 years. The last incumbent to be ousted was uh, Jane Byrne when Harold Washington took her out. Um, But she, you know, I know that she, it was her messaging and her bullying of everybody, from her constituents to her staff to, um, you know, Italian-American leaders who were just wondering where the columbus statue is i mean she just was a tyrant she was a dictator and she acted that way during covid too and people just lost faith in her but mostly because of the crime issue i mean we have 97 people right now guy who are out on electronic monitoring who have committed a violent crime whether it be rape or carjacking or armed robbery and last year there were 25 people who died at the hands of people who are out on electronic monitoring so she never really confronted our prosecutor or state's attorney, Kim Fox, to get her in line or to have her change her ways. And the city just went to hell in a handbag. I mean, look at Michigan Avenue. Look at State Street. If you drive down State Street, you would be appalled and just heartbroken. All the stores pulled out. And the last one to pull out was Old Navy. And they'd been there for 15 years. And they had had enough because they had smash and grab on a daily basis. I mean, the thing is, Amy, and it is heartbreaking because – you know, this is not a city that you hate. This is a city that you love. This is where you've made your life and your career. And, you know, I, of course, went to school here at Northwestern. I love Chicago. It always feels like a second homecoming coming back here. And, look, of course there were always crime problems in Chicago, even back in, in the, the best of the golden era glory days. Certain parts of the city were going to be dangerous and, and violent, uh, which was unfortunate. It was a fact of life. This is something just totally separate and different and worse. Areas that used to be totally safe and just sort of gleaming, the the shining, glittering examples of what Chicago can be, 
it's not, I would say, unrecognizable, but it is distinctly different and worse. And I don't know what her excuse is. I mean, she can do the identity politics stuff all she wants. But ultimately, people can look around and look at the statistics, understand what people are experiencing. They watch the late local news or the morning news uh, locally each morning. They see what's happening here. They don't like it. And look, whether she wants to admit it or not, she was in charge. This is on her. Right. And she you know, hired a superintendent who just he was never really here. He goes to Dallas, Texas, every chance he can. This is not his home. This is you know, he doesn't care. He has press conferences guy and i've been to them time after time where he's really just checking in just you know pressing the box just could care less and i just think that you know she just was in over her head did not know what she was doing and she was a bully about it and any person that tried to say like you know hey don't wear a coronavirus outfit on halloween that's not cool while people are locked out of their schools she did it anyway and anytime any, like she's plowed through communications directors because they, if they push back against her, she fires them, like off of their heads. So I don't know how we're going to get the city back, but it's um, I know the national media is like, celebrating that this woke mayor lost, but I don't feel a sense of victory. I still feel the sense of fear. I mean, we have 77 neighborhoods, and there has been robber, robberies, carjackings, you name it, in every single neighborhood. Lincoln Park is not safe. Lakeview is not safe. Wrigleyville is not safe. Places that used to be safe, it's it's all up for grabs. In 2022, violent crime up 35% in the city of Chicago. And she's trying to focus in on like certain, you know, year over year, this was a decline here. I mean, look at the numbers from when she took over to now. I mean, it's it is stark. It is scary. You've got a demoralized police force. That's certainly true. And I saw and I read in the last segment, Amy, a quote attributed to Mayor Lightfoot, soon to be former Mayor Lightfoot, was asked about the campaign and if she felt like she was treated fairly. And she reportedly just shrugged and chalked this up to being a black woman in America. And it, it's like she's pretending like this is a city that didn't, what, elect her in the first place? Like, I guess the sexism and the racism was paused when they elected her. Then she did an incredibly lousy job, and they rejected her, and now it's, you know, the fault of the bigots again or whatever. Yeah, I mean, she came out as a triple threat. That's how she wanted to be introduced day one when we talked to her on our morning show. My full interview with Amy Jacobson about Chicago and Lori Lightfoot and the entire show. It's all available start to finish on demand for free every day on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. The first couple went out to dinner, Joe and Jill Biden. They did something that's causing a lot of controversy among foodies. We'll tell you about it and debate it next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch. On the Guy Benson Show, I'll be at the Northwestern basketball game tonight, senior night. At Welsh Ryan Arena against Penn State, I'm nervous. I mean, the Cats have punched their ticket, I think, already to the tournament. But this is a big game. They really want to win this game. I want to see them win it in person. Should be a packed house. Lots of purple. Can't wait. Go Cats. Beat the Nittany Lions. Meanwhile, maybe on my way up to the arena, if I'm hungry, a little peckish, I could stop by a KFC. They're making headlines today, announcing that they are bringing back. Do you remember this? grotesque offense against human health, the double down. Well, it's coming back after almost a decade. 
This is a chicken sandwich in which the chicken is the bread. So there's no bread on the sandwich. It's two fried chicken breasts serving as the bun. And then the filling is like a mayo sauce and bacon and cheese. And I will tell you, just looking at the photo of this thing, it just makes me anxious. Not because of the calories. I'm sure the calories are off the charts, but whatever. It's the grease on your hands. Like, just, there's no way someone could really eat this thing like a sandwich. Holding the quote-unquote bread, which is fried chicken, and then biting into it. Oh, I'm just, mm mm-mm. But I guess it was backed by popular demand. It's got a very strong following. A lot of people were demanding that it come back. So at the very least, KFC is getting some publicity out of this. And uh, I remember the discussions around the double down eight, nine, ten years ago. Well, if you're a fan, congratulations, it's coming back. Let's talk about food in a different area although I guess it's in the dining out category. This is an online debate that's happening centered around President Biden and his wife, the First Lady. They went out to a restaurant in D.C. called the Red Hen. Different from a separate Red Hen, which is the restaurant in Virginia that threw Sarah Huckabee Sanders out. Remember when she was Trump's spokeswoman and all the people who would defend the baker having to bake a cake for a gay wedding, all those same people were like, good for this restaurant, throwing that woman out and not serving her. She's adjacent to lies. There's just not really a consistent form of thought there or, or train of thought on you know, a principle that you actually stick with because they were all clapping for that decision. Regardless, that was a different location, actually a different entity altogether. There's no relationship between or affiliation between the Red Hen out in Virginia and the Red Hen in D.C., just as an aside. So Joe and Jill, excuse me, Joe and Dr. Jill, were out to dinner at the Red Hen in D.C., and apparently they ordered exactly the same thing. They ordered bread, they ordered salad, and they ordered the exact same rigatoni pasta dish. And this became something of a phenomenon online with people arguing pretty vehemently about whether or not it is acceptable for a couple going out to dinner to order the same thing. Now, I have some thoughts on this, but I want to begin by saying, of course, it's acceptable, right? It's a free country. In spite of some of the efforts of this administration and their party, it's still a free country. If a couple wants to go out and order the same plate of pasta for both of them, who cares? They're allowed to do it. I'm not going to get that worked up over it. And I'll admit, if there are certain restaurants, let's say there's a place that you love, you and your spouse, you and your significant other, whoever it might be, and you love it because of one specific dish and you don't want to share it, you want to have a whole thing of it to yourself because you love it that much, then go for it. Knock yourself out. Not going to criticize. However, overall, I would say this is a strategic error. Right? So when 
Adam and I go out to eat, even just the two of us or in a group, we will generally order strategically. We'll look at the menu. We'll look at the options in various categories, appetizers, soups and salads, entrees, desserts. And we'll sort of identify a few things that we might both be interested in. And then we will split up the order as to get as much of the items of interest on the table as possible. And then we'll share. We don't necessarily fully share everything equally, but it's like, hey, can I try a bite of that? I'll give you a bite of this. You get to just taste a few more things. And then we will just split, you know, a dessert or something like that. That is the standard, I would say, operating procedure for us. And I think if you're trying to maximize enjoyment out of a restaurant experience, in almost all cases, that is the best way to go. Like, I'm racking my brain trying to think of an example where he and I have gone somewhere and ordered the exact same meal separately. I don't think I can think of an example. I came up with a hypothetical reason why, right? There's a pasta place or whatever where the rigatoni, let's say, is so, so good and so superior to everything else that that's the signature dish and you've got to get it and you don't want to share. That's fine. But overall, huge missed opportunity. I will add one more caveat before bringing in the rest of the team on this. Do I admit... Will I concede that perhaps in my advanced age, and next week is my birthday, I'll officially be in my late 30s. I mean, I'm getting there, okay? In my advanced age, Biden, of course, is 80, might I start to fall into even more routines where I just like something and it's what I do, and so I go and I do it, and... All of the calculations that I was just mentioning otherwise just sort of fall by the wayside because I get stuck in what I like because I'm old and who cares? Yeah, I think maybe I might gravitate toward that sort of behavior as I age. That's just like a guess. So I am not going to lose my mind over Joe and Jill getting the same plate of pasta, but it is definitely not the choice I would make. Just lukewarm take. If there's anything I'm good at, it's bringing you some piping, not hot, lukewarm takes on stuff like this. I'm sure Christine has something very dramatic to say, if I had to guess. That's how she rolls. Christine, your thoughts on this? Uh, Bobby and I have never, even if we like the same dish, we have never gone to a restaurant and ordered the same exact thing. That being said, I have to say something, and I'm wondering if there's a lot of women out there that this their husbands do this for them bobby um unless it's something that he knows i'm absolutely gonna love if it's something that i'm trying out for the first time bobby orders something that maybe he knows i'll have because he knows in the back of his mind that he's gonna have to switch with me if i don't like it and the same thing goes for drinks like this weekend i decided i wanted to try a spicy margarita Now, Bobby knew in the back of his mind I was not going to want that. I was going to want my Cosmo. But he didn't say anything. He waited until I took a sip. Then I handed him my drink, and then he took that drink, and then I ordered my Cosmo. Hmm. (laughs) First of all, spicy margs are great. Maybe you didn't get a good one. Awful. Um, I mean, no. I mean, spicy margs, so, so, so much better than Cosmos. I think you ordered it to not like it. I think you ordered it to then make a face and hand it off to someone else and get what you wanted. 
I, that's my theory. So on this issue, though, of ordering the exact same thing as a couple, you're saying you've never done it before. You seem to be part of the outraged crew on this. Is this impeachable? <laughs> it's not impeachable, but boy, am I going to say it's a missed opportunity mm, to try okay. other dishes. Yeah, I was it's not going to happen in this home. High crime, high crime and misdemeanor in Cookie's book. Uh, so, like, for example, when you go out for an authentic Italian meal and you order Hawaiian pizza, Bobby doesn't order Hawaiian pizza as well? That is not what we do when we go for authentic. I'll tell you, we've gone yeah, to I know. He, he probably gets, like, pepperoni, right, or something else, and you're, you're munching on, you know— uh, store-bought ham and pineapples. I get it. It's very authentic. Uh, Dan, I know that you don't have this problem because your girlfriend's a vegetarian, right? So you can have a steak, and there's zero risk that she's going to be asking for bites of it. If she doesn't like her little vegetarian dish, well, that's on her because, you know, uh, the the bro in the relationship has ordered a giant piece of beef. That's very true. She's a pescatarian, so she'll eat fish, which is nice because we'll split that. that's better. Yeah, yeah, it's that's not. It's that, not, that's, she's not I, like I'm vegan. not judging. I'm not judging vegetarians <laughs> or vegans. I mean, I sort of am, but I find pescatarian yeah. a lot easier, especially if you're trying to like share some food. That that's easier to accommodate. But please go on. Um, but what we do do is um, with appetizers, we kind of like do family style, so we'll share a bunch of things. So yes. especially like fish things, and even if we'll do it for a full meal, like if there's a restaurant that there's things we could both eat, we'll just get a bunch of plates and just oh, share that's it right. for dinner. That's no, that, that's some of my absolute. In fact, you know what? The other night on Sunday, I was in New York and I had just co-hosted the big show on Fox News. And one of my fellow co-hosts for the weekends, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, familiar to this audience, she and I went out to dinner, just the two of us to catch up. It had been a while. And we did the only apps thing. We got four or five appetizers, split them. It was delicious. It was fantastic. It was Greek food. And I very much am a fan of that style of ordering. We'll give the last word to Wyatt because uh, he is now wanting the world to know that he's not a picky eater anymore. We mentioned that yesterday. Wyatt, do you have a very important take or perspective on the Bidens and their pasta ordering? Not really. Uh, only to say that if I'm going out and eating food and, you know, you want to do the whole sharing thing, what well, my main course, just – Keep your hands off of it. Like, to me, it's like if you order your food, it's your food. No sharing. Eat your food and enjoy it. That's the last word. Wyatt, are you single? <laughs> yeah, but I I would rather keep it that way. Don't touch okay. my food. All right. We'll see. Check back with me when you're booed up and have a partner at some point or a significant other. The perspective might change, especially if your significant other, I mean, God forbid, they're like Christine, but in this in this sense, they're like Christine in wanting uh, to share and that sort of thing. You might shift your mind just a little bit on it. But for now, I respect the position and we've got to go. Windy City edition of The Guy Benson Show is complete. Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show with a terrific guest host from our affiliate down in Atlanta, Extra 106.3. I'm back here on Friday from the sunshine state of Florida. Looking forward to that as well. Thank you for listening and have a great night.
From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.